Um, but some people, some people get satisfied with being the big fish. They get just enough accolade, just enough money, you know, just enough to keep them satisfied. And they miss out on what they could actually become. They, they just miss out because it's like Zig used to say, good is the enemy of the best. They settle for good instead of becoming their best self because it's fearful to leave and go into a bigger pond and, you know, those kinds of things. I used to chase the ROI all the time, return on investment. And over the course of time, that has evolved into what I call return on life. Welcome to Return on Life podcast. I'm your host, Brandy Dick. And today we're going to mean incredible guests, but let's first talk about what return on life means. Uh, we chase the ROI in life and just about everything, just about everything. But along the way, I've come up with this idea. What about return on life versus return on investment? So I've been diving into this with guests from all over the world. And today I have an amazing guest, Chris Widener. And if you haven't heard Chris's name, you've been under a rock somewhere. Chris has been named top 100 speaker in the world by Inc., top 50 in the world as well, and then top 10 in sales by Success Magazine. So this fellow, Chris, is no stranger to the stage, and I'm really, really excited about uh, having Chris on with me today and Return on Life. Is there anything we should add to uh, that incredible resume? Chris, what we've got you. Well, you know, one of the things that people like to know about is that I had a TV show with a legendary motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar. And then I spent the last seven years of a guy named Jim Rohn's life working with him and wrote his last book called 12 Pillars. So I uh, was extremely fortunate in the early 2000s. I got to work with John Maxwell. I wrote with John for about 18 months. And then I did a TV show with Zig for a couple of years. And then I spent seven years working with Jim Rohn. So, you know, people ask me, how, how do you build a Hall of Fame? I'm in the Motivational Speakers Hall of Fame. You know, how do you build a Motivational Speakers Hall of Fame career? And I said, it's really simple. It's three steps. First, have John Maxwell call you. Then second, have Jim Rohn call you. And third, have Zig Ziglar call you. And once you do those three things, then everything just seems to work out fine. So. Wow. Wow. And how did that come about? Was it something that you'd done? Because, you know, we're all looking for ways to find our, I guess, our path into uh, the next room, the right room. How did that transpire? What did you do to find yourself in those rooms? Well, I'll tell you what, I want to write a book someday called The Power of Being Second Fiddle. And uh, and I, I'll tell you, my career exploded when I was willing to be second fiddle, to play second fiddle. And I always say that second fiddle in the greatest orchestra in the world is way better than being first fiddle in a local little community symphony, right? And so... Um, I had gotten to know John Maxwell a little bit when he was a pastor because I had been a pastor. In fact, I took a graduate course from John Maxwell before he even left the pastorate. Uh, it was a doctoral level uh, course that I took from John. So I knew him and I knew his team. He transitioned into speaking full time and, and left the, the pastorate. And um, and I did the same thing. So I stopped being a pastor and started uh, you know, speaking and writing. And they hired me to write for him because I think they they figured that I got the voice he spoke in, you know, former pastor, business speaker, not necessarily, you know, always talking about the Bible or whatever, but but the worldview. And, and so I worked with him for about 18 months and wrote his nationally syndicated column. Um, and, and then same thing with Jim Rohn. They called me up, said, would you be willing to write, write with Jim? And I said, yeah, I would love to write with Jim. And then I ended up with a TV show. And then 
uh, Zig's son, Tom, came to me and said, hey, Zig uh, has a TV show on the same network or they've offered him one. But this was at the time when Zig was starting to get a little bit of a little bit of onset of the dementia. And I think Tom wanted me to kind of, you know, I always say I threw batting practice for Zig Ziglar. I just threw the questions and then he, you know, he hit him out of the ballpark. But, you know, a lot of times people say um, if they meet somebody that is further ahead than them, they'll say, I want to be like you. Will you help me? That's the wrong question. You need to say, I want to be like you. How can I help you? Mm. Because everybody's asking them to help them. But very few people are saying, how can I help you? Well, the way that I could help those three guys was to write with them and to co-host and, you know, help carry the show. So um, so I always say that playing second fiddle is not a bad thing. It just depends on who the first fiddle is. So true. So true. You know, I often say, you know, um, I was a big fish in a small pond. And um, and then I, I realized that, you know, I was going to get nowhere being the big fish. I had to go to a really big pond and be the small fish and learn from the big fish how to act in the big pond. And uh, absolutely that so eloquently with the fiddle. Um, but some people, some people get satisfied with being the big fish. They get just enough accolade, just enough money, you know, just enough to keep them satisfied. And they miss out on what they could actually become. They, they just miss out because it's like Zig used to say, good is the enemy of the best. They settle for good instead of becoming their best self because it's fearful to leave and go into a bigger pond and, you know, those kinds of things. Yeah, which is really, I, I think, ties nicely into return on life. You know, um, for me anyways, uh, life is is got to be evolving, growing um expanding and that's not just money that's just in experiences which you're never going to experience much if you just stay in that small pond or stay that you know the lead fiddle in that small town yeah uh, i'm sure you've experienced that you've um you know we chatted a, a few weeks ago down in uh, seattle up in seattle for you down in seattle for me coming from vancouver yeah. and uh, you shared some amazing stories of your childhood and some of the life lessons and things that you uh, learned along the way. Um, do you want to share a little bit about being a ball boy for the Sonics? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you. Um, and I'll tell you a really amazing story. This story has gone all over the world. I do it every year. Uh, I release it every year, but I was a ball boy for the Seattle Supersonics from uh, November of 1977 until June of 1984, seven years. The first year I started working for the Sonics when they were two and 11. When they got to five and 17, they they fired their coach, Bob Hopkins, and they hired Lenny Wilkins. And Lenny came in, long story short, we went to the seventh game of the NBA championship that year. Uh, we lost to the Washington Bullets, now the Washington Wizards. We lost to them in Seattle. Uh, I can remember, you know, 14,280 people in that Seattle Coliseum. And I remember Paul Silas, who's about six foot eight, 260 pounds. There's like 30 seconds left. It's during a timeout. He's yelling at me, this giant man yelling at me. And I'm like, I can't hear you. I can't hear you. I I have no still to this day, I have no idea what uh what what Paul Silas was yelling at me for. The next year we won the world championship. The next year, Magic Johnson and Larry Bird got drafted into the NBA and we never went back. So well, I think we actually went back to the NBA championships in 96, but um it was a great a, a great um 
opportunity. To, I met so many people. I've been trash talked by Larry Bird. Uh, Larry Bird, the first time I ever met Larry Bird, I was 13 and I was working the visiting team's locker room and I hadn't changed into my uniform yet. And I was over in the visiting team's locker room and they got there really early and I was wearing my football jersey from school and I played quarterback. So it was number 11. And in they walk and Larry Bird takes one look at me and he's a renowned trash talker. Like everybody says he's the greatest trash talker of all time. He walks right in, doesn't say hello, doesn't say anything. He looks at me and he says, number 11, what are you talking about number 11? That's a quarterback's number. You too short to play quarterback. You're a midget. You can't play like just chipping at this young ball boy. He's just, I mean, it was all in fun, but um, the, the, the best story I have from that, and it's a great story for humanity and a return on life. Uh, right after I started working there, I broke both my arms. I fell off a, I fell off a roof and broke both my arms. I come walking in and there was a young guy who was in his second maybe his second, maybe his third year in the NBA, a guy named Dennis Johnson. Nobody knew who he was. Like he was still, he he wasn't the great legendary Hall of Fame Boston Celtic at that point. And I come walking in with two broken arms and DJ is getting wrapped, his ankles wrapped by Frank Furtado, this old curmudgeon boss of mine who was the trainer. And they both just laughed at me. And they said, what happened to you? I said, I fell off a roof. And I said, I just want to know, can I keep my job? And he says, well, Frank says, you can keep your job if you can do your job. Well, one of my jobs was to take those big five-gallon Gatorade jugs, take them from the locker room to the court. And we had to carry them. And the court was about 200 yards away. The locker room actually wasn't even under the stadium. There were long hallways out. It wasn't even under the, the actual stadium. It was way out here. So I going, I'm mixing them up like this. And DJ walks into the room where I was mixing them up and he says, Hey, um, why don't you get those outside and wait for me? I'm going to go out and shoot around. And I said, okay. So I literally drag them across the, the locker room and all the players are watching me. I get them outside the door and I sit down on one and out walks DJ a couple minutes later with a ball and he hands me the ball and he goes, let's go. Up he took both of those things, carried it 200 yards through a tunnel. When you come out of the tunnel, you go through the concourse where all the restaurants and everything are, but they have it roped off so that you can walk out and walk through. So there's hundreds of fans. And then you enter into underneath the stadium uh, seating and then out onto the court. For six weeks, Dennis Johnson humbled himself and carried water for a little kid so that I could keep my job. And he did it in front of hundreds of fans who probably thought, what in the world does this guy carry? I mean, they knew once they saw my broken arms, but I, I just think that was one of the greatest acts of humanity anybody ever did for me. And, you know, you think about race relations and black and white and fame and fortune versus, you know, poverty versus an older guy, younger, like just so much that we all, the world says shouldn't happen. And this guy did that for me. I ended up becoming friends with him and his wife, Donna. They ended up having a son named Dwayne and, and just really impacted my life a lot just for six weeks, that act of kindness and humility so I could keep my job. Wow. What an incredible story. Incredible story. Um, you, you never, you just never know where something's going to take you. And I mean, there's a crucible moment that uh, impacted not only you, but probably hundreds of people around that uh, that that moment, that story and so forth. That's really incredible. Hey, I'm going to come back. You talked about the, the team being absolutely dreadful and going on to be incredible winners. And there's, you know, these these two analogies, you know, are you a baker or are you a cooker? A baker is somebody that's, you know, is very precise. It's almost science. You know, you never know what you're going to get until you pull it out of the oven. 
versus cooking where you're always kind of tasting and well okay we'll put a little bit of this spice in we'll change that up what changed the sonics season was it was it baking or was it cooking uh, I would probably say it's baking, and I'll tell you why. So Bill Russell had been the coach, and Bill Russell retired, and he gave the job, or somebody gave the job, to his um, his cousin, a guy named Bob Hopkins. Bob had never coached in the league, and, and I don't know really what was going on there, but they were terrible. But here's the deal. The two starting guards for the Seattle Supersonics were downtown Freddie Brown and Slick Watts. And both of those people were beloved by Seattleites for different reasons, but still to this day, beloved by Seattleites. And Lenny Wilkins comes in and he made a, an extraordinarily tough decision. He traded Slick Watts and he put Fred Brown on the bench and he started two young guys named Dennis Johnson and Gus Williams. And and that was one of the biggest things. Uh, I mean, it was it was really pretty, pretty incredible. And so our starting lineup that year was uh, was uh, um, uh, Dennis Johnson, Gus Williams. The small forward was John Johnson. Uh, the 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 forward was uh, Jack Sigma and the center was Marvin Webster. At the end of that season, when we lost the seventh game, we traded uh, Marvin Webster to the New York Knicks for Lonnie Shelton. Lonnie became the power forward and Jack Sigma went to the center position. So, so I think that whole idea of the minutia and finding the right, it was almost like unlocking the code, right? You, you took, and it was tough though, to put those guys on the bench and to trade one of them. But Lenny was kind of legendary in Seattle anyway, and everybody loved Lenny. One of the, one of the greatest guys I ever met, Lenny Wilkins. I, I got a great Lenny Wilkins story. If you want to hear a Lenny Wilkins story, yeah, that year that we that year that we went to Washington D.C., I went with the team, and I wanted a souvenir. And I was twelve, and I wanted a souvenir. We were staying at the Hyatt Regency in Washington D.C. I went down into the um, into the um, little gift shop. And I said, and I have no idea why I asked for this, but I said, do you have any money clips? And the lady behind the counter says, no, no money clips. And I'm like, oh, I wanted a money clip. Maybe said Washington, D.C. on it or something. She said, no, we don't have a money clip. I said, oh, okay, no problem. The next night at the game, one of my jobs as the visiting team locker room attendant was to ask all the players. We had a we had a bag that I carried around that was like had fibers, steel fibers woven into it. It was called the valuables bag. So I went from player to player collecting watches and wallets and chains and all those things. And then you take it to the home team and they put it in a safe after the game you bring it back. So I'm going around and Lenny Wilkins says, hey, Chris, come here. Well, you never take anything from the coaches because they're wearing suits. They keep their wallet. They wear their watch. And I go walking over and, and he has this little box and he says, here you go. And I go for the valuable bag. He goes, no, 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 that's for you. And I go, huh? For me? He goes, yeah, it's a gift. Open it up. And I open it up. It was a silver money clip wow. with an emerald basketball with ivory making the lines out in it. And I, what? He must have been in the he must have been in the gift shop like over on the and heard me say it and then went out. Here he is coaching an NBA team in an NBA championship series. And he takes the time to go somewhere and buy this little kid a money clip. Wow. Just classiest, you know, those two stories, two of the classiest things ever done for me in my, to me, for me, however you want to say it. Mm -hmm. But um, just really some great lessons from, from some folks back then during the, 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 the time in the NBA that I spent. Yeah. Yeah. 
Wow. Uh, and getting those lessons so early on in life. So you've you've been around these incredible athletes, incredible situations. You've, uh, I'm sure, spoken on, well, every stage around the world from Russia to Germany to Australia, like wherever and ever. And um, you've met some incredible people. Along the way, there's all these crucible moments that people have. These moments that shape, change, impact people's lives and you know how important are these not only in shaping who we are but shaping how we see life do you have any uh any any thoughts on that any story yeah you share yeah, i'll tell you i'll tell you a story happened to me and then i'll tell you a story that happened to a friend of mine they teach you the same thing sort of similarly um one of our daughters always says to my wife and i why do you talk to everybody? Like we go in, we'll start talking to people, waiting in line for a restaurant. We start talking to people. Well, we were in Mykonos, Greece, Denise and me and, and the two girls. And we're, we're sitting out, little tiny bar. This, bar. this bar patio was maybe 12 feet by 10 feet. And there's an older couple sitting four or five feet from us. Very elegant looking. You could tell they were people of means and, and we're drinking a glass of wine. And I start talking to this couple. And the woman says to me, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, I'm a writer. And she puts her hand on her, on her husband's um, knee and in the understatement of the afternoon says, my husband's also a writer. And I said, really? What do, and I looked at him, I said, what do you, what do you write? And he says, well, I'm a playwright. And I said, oh, have you written anything that we might have heard of? And he says, Mary Poppins. And I went, oh, and then my, and then his wife puts her hand on his knee again and says, my husband's far too humble to tell you this, but have you ever heard of an EGOT? And I said, sure, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Very few people have won all four. And she says, yes, that's correct. My husband has only not won the Tony, which I thought was kind of funny. Parenthetically, I thought it was kind of funny because he considered himself a playwright, but he's never won the Tony. But he's won an Oscar, a Grammy, uh, and, a, uh, and an Emmy. And so she says, the only one he hasn't won is the Tony. So I look at him and I say, so all you're left with is the ego. And he bursts out laughing. He thinks that's the funniest thing ever. And I said, so what are you working on now? This was June of 2019. I said, what are you working on now? And he says, I'm working on a movie based on a play that or based on a TV show that I wrote. And I said, really, what's the TV show that you created and wrote? And he said, it's called Downton Abbey. And I went, oh, Julian Fellows or sitting here with Julian Fellows and his wife. Well, his wife is like the lady in waiting to the Duchess of Kent. And we're just sitting there you know, shooting BS with these two, drinking a glass of wine. We get up and we leave. We walk out the door. My wife immediately turns to Caitlin and says, that's why you talk to everybody, because you never know who you're going to meet. Now I'll tell you about a story of a friend of mine, Bill Staten. Bill Staten is um, he's a speaker, lives in Seattle, Mensa, plays the piano, huge into music, one of the greatest authorities on on uh, uh, the Beatles of all time. But he's really into classical music. He gets on an airplane in New York or Boston. He's got a four or five hour trip back to Seattle, sits down. And this little old lady wants to start talking to him. And uh, he puts his earphones on. He's like, I don't want to talk to anybody now. And he's listening to classical music and the whole thing. She keeps trying to talk to him. He keeps mm, 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 trying to put her off. She finally zips it, shuts her mouth. Five hours go by. They say, it's time to turn off all your electronic devices. You know, we've got 20 minutes. We're going to land. They sit down. She says, what were you listening to? 
And he says, classical music. I love classical music. And um, she says, what specific one were you listening to? Or no, she says, who's who's one of your favorites? And I don't remember it. You can Google this on online. His name is Bill Stainton, S-T-A-I-N-T-O-N. It's an amazing story. He mentions some Russian composer or something from like the mid-1900s. And she says, oh, I love him. What's your favorite whatever, concerto. And he says, such and such. And she says, ah, I was with him when he wrote that. And he went, huh? And it's up. She was friends with this guy who's his favorite composer, who he was listening to the whole way across. But he didn't want to talk to her. Mm. And he says, one of the greatest mistakes of my life was not spending five hours talking to this woman who I would have loved to have spent five hours talking to. So, you know, I think uh, I think you got to talk to people. you got to enjoy life. you got to. I love your story, Randy, and what you've done. I love we were with Kim Frazier. What an amazing story what she's done. You know, just all these people you come in contact with. And we we all have this story and. Mm. Some are more extreme or some are more, you know, whatever, but we all have a story and we can all learn from those stories. And so I just think it's important to love people. I, I love people. I, I find them fascinating. They also drive me nuts. But uh, <laughs> but no, there's so many great stories and lessons we can learn just from hearing other people. Absolutely. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, fear. Fear seems to be uh, all around us all the time. We hear about it. Um, you've, uh, I'm sure thought about this. You've interviewed people. I'm sure is fear. What's best. How do you best describe fear is a motivator, a friend or a foe? Yes. <laughs> I think it depends. I think it depends on how you perceive it really. I mean, you know, fear, fear can make you run when you need to run. Uh, fear can keep you from doing things you should be doing. Um, it just sort of all depends on what the exact situation is. So, you know, I always talk about taking risks, but not being risky. And I think, you know, we're usually afraid of something we think will hurt us. And taking risks can often, it, we place ourselves in the path of pain or failure or or those kinds of things. So I think it's a matter of of, of being calculated in our risk, knowing what the end goal is. And you still might feel the fear, but you have to do it anyway. And, you know, there's things that I'm not afraid of at all. Uh, public speaking, for one. And I never have been. And yet it's the number one fear. People fear public speaking more than they fear death, which is why Jerry Seinfeld said most people at the next funeral you go to would rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. And so, um, you know, I, I think it's important just to be able to say, OK, this is something I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do it. Um, sometimes it matches your talents. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. You know, there's that saying, weapons of mass destruction. That was so, such a big, but what about weapons of self-destruction? And I think here's how we can uh, tie that into. Uh, we sabotage so much of ourselves because of, you know, wh whether it's fear or we don't want to put ourselves out somewhere, but uh, you see a lot of self-destruction, don't you? Yeah, and, and unfortunately, we don't have to do it to ourselves. I think I challenge people to say, what are you really afraid of? Well, what if I fail? Okay, what if you fail? You, you start over. 
you know, you, you start over. There's an interesting book, and I can't remember who wrote it or what it was about, but it was talk about it was talking about getting rich quick. And he said, most people say that you should get rich slow. And he said, I I don't like that. I like the idea of getting rich quick. And this guy was about 30 years old. And he said, when I was 22, I tried something and I went broke. And then I tried something again and I went broke. And then I tried something again and I went broke. And then I tried something again and sold it for a hundred million dollars. And he said, if I'd have waited till I was 40 and I had everything secure, and then I started going broke, then I'd have been too old to start that thing. So I thought it was really interesting where he says, what's the worst that can happen to you? You go broke and you start over again. And better to get those things out of the way early than delaying them till you got a, you know, a spouse and kids and a mortgage and, and all those kinds of things. So I think you have to look and say, what's the absolute worst thing that could happen to me? And is that okay? Hmm. Well, speaking of broke, I've often heard the saying, uh, balanced life equals broke. Hmm. Is that true? Well, not if you're born into a very wealthy family with a trust fund. But uh, <laughs> no, I get the point. I mean, the point being that if you're living a balanced life, you're never going to do the things that it's going to take you to achieve great wealth. Yeah. And, you know, there's there's a lot of people who said, I mean, you look at some of these guys who are billionaires and they work all the time. Um, I, I have speaker friends of mine, a very dear friend of mine. He does 110 events a year. We charge the same amount of money. We always have our entire career. We charge the same amount of money. He does about 110. I topped out at about 70. And now I, I do maybe 15, 20 a year. And, um, and I've always said, of course, he's richer than I am. He works harder than I do. And, you know, I had a friend of mine sold his company for $800 million. And at one point before that, when he was building the company out, he said to me once, Chris, I wish I had your life. And I said, I wish I had your money. Would you like to trade a little bit? <laughs> you know, and, but he got rich and sold his company for $800 because he was working 100 hours a week. And so for me, I've done quite well in my life and enjoy a nice life. But I, I chose to not be as financially successful as I could by having that balanced life. And so I totally understand the principle. Mm. You're a coach, you're a mentor, you're a speaker. You've inspired hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions around the world, probably millions. Um, do you have a coach today? Would you encourage people to have a coach or a mentor today? I've actually had coaches. I currently am. Co I do have a coach. I just paid somebody eighty eight hundred dollars uh, to coach me for a three month coaching thing on uh, how to build a group coaching. I've always done one on one coaching. Mm -hmm. um, and so I wanted to learn how to do group coaching because you make a little bit less money, but you have more people, but you spend less time. And so um, I do a group coaching session every Tuesday night. Uh, I have this thing called the Ancient Wisdom Business School, and it's 16 uh, weeks of group coaching on business from the book of Proverbs. And um, and so we've started filling that up. But, yeah, I paid these folks eighty eight hundred dollars to teach me how to do it. In my early days of my speaking career, early 90s, I started speaking right out of college, but early 90s, 93, 94, something like that, I hired a coach to teach me how to uh, to become a speaker and to how to build a speaking business. Um, but yeah, all throughout my my years, I've, I've hired coaches from time to time to learn the things that I needed to learn. And today you're still coaching people? I, yep, I am. I'm coaching a guy right now who's, uh, he owns 11 uh, assisted living um, 
uh, businesses, and he has an amazing concept that uh, I'm helping him, coaching him, and uh, and putting him in touch with investors and things like that. And and so, yeah, I still coach people, and I'm currently being coached. Right on. Um, around the world, you've uh, coached many people. You've seen lots of businesses. What is what is the secret to creating a bulletproof business, a bulletproof life? Uh, is there is there a secret? Is there a secret sauce? Is there anything that uh, you could share with us that you've seen? You know, it depends your- on what you're trying to be bulletproof from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think things like joy and happiness and honesty and integrity cannot be taken from you. They can't be killed off and they can't be taken from you. So those internal character things are always bulletproof, in my opinion, as long as you stand to your, you know, your your morals, values and ethics. Um, things like money. I had a major setback in the uh, early 2000s, uh, 2007. I had started to accumulate a lot of money. I bought a giant mansion. It was my dream house. I drove by it for 21 years. Hmm. And uh, my front gate was 500 feet long. It was brick pillars with wrought iron fencing, big double gates that open up, quarter mile circular driveway, 1800 bottle wine cellar, swimming pool, pool house, gazebos, 10 acres of land, half mile of riverfront. I paid a million three for it in 2004. And in 2007, uh, the county took a, a, an easement on my property. And again, long story short, I started getting sinkholes on the property. I ended up losing $2 million on a house I paid a million three for because, you know, all the trying to fix it and the suing the county and everything. And it completely reset me to zero. And, uh, you know, I ended up owing a ton of money to people, you know, because I was borrowing money on credit cards to fund everything to try to keep our house from falling into the river. And my attorney said, go bankrupt. And I said, well, I make too much money to go bankrupt, according to the, you know, to wipe it out. And they said, well, the judges have a little leniency. These laws are built for somebody like you. And I said, you know what? I'm not morally opposed to bankruptcy, um, but I'm not going to go bankrupt. I'm going to pay everybody back. And they're like, these are credit card companies. I said, yeah, but you know who invests in credit card companies? Teachers pensions and police officers pensions. And those those are the kinds of folks that invest in stocks and things like credit card companies. And and so I said, I'm going to pay them all back. This happened in 2007. And I paid back my last debtor in uh, 2021, September of 2021, I took 14 years to pay every single person back. Um, But I got set back and it was not bulletproof. I would have thought I was bulletproof, but money can go, people can go, people get betrayed by people all the time. They get betrayed by spouses and family members. And, you know, so I don't know that there's a bulletproof life. I, uh, you know, the, the circumstances I don't think can ever be bulletproof. I think you can protect them. I think you can do as much as you can to, to, to protect them. But, you know, if hyperinflation happens, uh, it's going to get the rich people and the poor people, (laughs) you know, if we end up, you know, hyperinflation of 1800% a month, you know, even the rich people, people won't be able to afford milk. So, you know, there's forces greater than us that sometimes we get swept up in. So true. You know, life is like, like a wheel. We all have a different size of wheel. And uh, so a very well-to-do friend of mine said, hey, Randy, uh, you know, I have problems just like you. It's just that my wheel is bigger. I have more money on that wheel, but my problems are probably bigger than your problems too. And, uh, you know, so things come to all people, good, bad, or indifferent. They're always happening. doesn't matter where you are in life. I think uh, 
Yeah, life's kind of like that that great big G- Jesus said the sun shines on the righteous and the unrighteous and it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous you know it happens to all of us absolutely absolutely um what's the number one priority for you on a daily basis I think you already kind of shared that but is it uh, just gratitude and gratefulness for everything that uh, God's given you yeah, my wife and I, we start every single day the exact same way. We get up, we make coffee, we sit down, um, we read a little one page from a devotional, then I read a chapter from the Bible, then we read a couple pages from a book. Sometimes it's a self-help book, sometimes it's a marriage book, and then we uh, we pray for the day and the week, and we she goes to her office, I come up to my office, and we work all day until we meet back down in the kitchen at about 5.30 for a glass of wine. So that's kind of our, our thing, but... Uh, I think on a day-to-day basis, I want to make an impact um, because impact is what lasts. Money doesn't last. Now, if you make an impact, you'll you'll make money. I really believe that. Unless you're in, you know, you're a missionary overseas or something like that, you know, obviously, or you know, Red Cross worker. You're not, but you're not in it for the money. I like money. I like what money can do for me. But at the end of my life. I want to know that I made an impact and that other people are better off because I was in their life. Mm. And of course, I'm sure you've got seasons too where that comes and goes. You know, I'm a I'm a Christian as well, and there's there's always uh, seasons of life and things that come at you that uh, kind of change that. But I'm sure that's changed a little bit for you as well. Seasons. Oh, I've been mad at God before. Uh, I took a few years off from church, and I was a former pastor, and I got mad at God, and you know, I was mad about, and this was in the middle of all this collapse of my home, and you know, and all that kind of stuff, and. And no, I got I got mad at God, and and it's okay to get it's okay to get mad at God. He's a big boy; he gets it. You know, God God understands. You know, it's kind of like when you're your little kid, you know, and he's shaking his fist at you, Dad. Ah, you're just like, come on, you'll get over this, right? And I think the same thing with God. He looks at us, and he's just like, I get it. You're mad, but it's all going to work out. You'll see, I'm right in the long run. So, yeah, I think I think there's uh, there's some. some greatness in, in in questioning and asking why i broke my mother at 14 was woke up paralyzed you know and that was one of the questions i woke up with you know why me god like why this yeah so, of course but today i know why uh, you know i would never give up that because it shaped and changed me and made me who i am today so yeah uh, i see it almost as a gift in some ways speaking of gifts what's the uh what what's your greatest gift and um and when did you know you had that gift well i think it's speaking and now i would say writing and i've had a personal mission statement for 30 something years mm-hmm. and it helps me determine what i'm going to do on a day to day basis my mission statement has always been i will use my writing and speaking skills to help other people turn their potential into performance succeed in every area of their lives and achieve their dreams so somebody comes to me and says, hey, you want to start a construction company? I go, no, because it's not going to utilize my my writing or speaking skills. I get invited to a podcast. I'm on a podcast, right, because it utilizes my speaking skills. And you have an audience that I can encourage and challenge and, you know, and help and, and those kinds of things. So I would say my greatest gift is speaking. Um, but I, I'll tell you this. You'll like this one. I always say that your greatest weakness is your greatest strength carried to its extreme. So my greatest strength is speaking. My greatest weakness is speaking. Because <laughs> this thing, this thing has taken me all over the world. It's also got me into a lot of trouble over the course of my lifetime. So, but you, you think about it. If you're an accountant and you're very analytical, that's your strength. But if you're over analytical, 
then that's your weakness, right? So, so whatever you do well, your weakness is usually when you take that too far and it becomes a detriment to you instead of a, a, a benefit to you. Blessing or curse, blessing or curse. Yep. Yeah. So speaking of gifts, how do you help unlock others? Because a lot of people, and I've met a lot of people too, they don't really know their gift. How do you help them unlock that or find that? Well, I think there's some things that just, um, you know, things like um, um, gifts inventories, you know, if Christians have spiritual gifts inventories, but you also have the ENJP or whatever those are, you have disc profiles, you know, you can find your gifts and talents that way. But I, I like to ask people, what are you passionate about? And most people are passionate about something they're good at. Um, most people. Now, sometimes people are passionate about painting and they're not that good, or they're passionate about singing and they're not that good. We see those on the audition segment of American Idol every year, um, you know, but uh, but I, I try to find people and I, I point people toward the the intersection of their talent and passion combined with um, the market's needs, mm-hmm. right? So if somebody says, I'm passionate about teaching octogenarians how to crochet, Okay, that's great. You want to teach a bunch of 80 year olds how to crochet. That's fantastic. Probably never going to get rich that way. Right. But if you say, I want to build electric cars for all Americans, you become Elon Musk. Right. So because there's there's something you're passionate about, science, technology, and everybody wants an electric car. And so I always tell people, look for the place. The perfect place for you is the intersection of your strengths and gifts and the marketplace needs. And that's going to be your sweet spot for building a business. Hmm, I like that. That's great. Great answer. Um, who is the best in the world that you've been on stage with? You've been on stage with a lot of people. Who's the best besides yourself? Well, you know, I, I think Zig is classic. You know, Zig is classic. Jim is great, but he's more professorial. In fact, people always say, what do you learn from working with Jim and Zig? And I always say, um, uh, to be myself. And they say, how'd you learn that? And I said, well, they were both at the highest levels of that industry and they were completely different. You know, Jim was very professorial. Uh, I always say, you always knew Jim was getting excited when he did his power move, which was this. He'd take his reading glass off. Whoa, Jim just took his reading glass off. Things are about to get crazy here. You know, and Zig would prance up and down the stage and he'd talk fast and then he'd whisper like this. You know, he was very dynamic, but very different. Um, I like a guy, I'll I'll name some names. I don't even know if you've ever heard of him before, but um, a guy named Willie Jolly. Willie Jolly is uh, an African-American guy, Motivational Speakers Hall of Fame, National Speakers Association Hall of Fame. He's a singer, speaker. He has a show on uh, Sirius Radio, I think, out of D.C., him and his wife, Dee. He and I took a tour of Australia together, and the guy they partnered us with was another guy that I would say is one of the best speakers I've ever heard in my life. His name is Pat Masidi, and Pat is all of about five foot five. He wears like $5,000 suits and cufflinks and everything. I mean, he, I'd never heard of the guy. Willie and I show up in Sydney and we meet this guy that we're going on tour with, and I'm like, oh, okay, there's an interesting guy, and he blew me away. I was like, I turned to Willie and I was like, this guy's good. And neither one of us had ever heard of him before. And Willie's amazing. But no, there's a lot of great speakers. There's a guy out of Minnesota called Mark Sharonbrock, 
who sort of does, um, he does speeches, but then he also does these one man things where he dresses up in character and he does these like 40 minute monologues. And there's a lot of really great speakers out there. Um, just a, a, a lot of really great ones. I could probably go on and on. My, my friend, good friend, Waldo Waldman, uh, he's former Air Force fighter pilot, uh, amazing guy, lives in Atlanta, uh, an amazing career in speaking, uh, sales and leadership. Um, there's just a ton of really great people out there um, in the speaking world. Mm, I love that. There's so many, uh, well, that's like in every industry, right? There's just so many talented people and some just don't get that break. They just don't mm -hmm. break or they don't have the right room, the right people, whatever it may be. Well, all you have to do is go to, I, I don't know the last time you went to Nashville, but we went to, Na we have a daughter that goes to Vanderbilt. So we're in Nashville quite a bit and we live in Chattanooga. We're two hours away. We were in a little bar once with about, there were four bartenders, but there was like 12 people in this bar. And this woman, they they do the change. And, and so now she comes up on stage and she starts to sing and the whole bar stopped. And here's the crazy thing. These bars have thousands and thousands of singers come through there. The bartender stopped and all at once grabbed their phones and started videotaping. I turned to my wife and said, do you know how good she has to be to get these bartenders who've heard everybody under the sun? And I, and I just thought the sad thing is she may never, ever make it in that town even though she was, in my opinion, one of the greatest singers I've ever heard in my life, didn't get her name, nothing. But she was, we sat there for an hour and just listened to this woman sing, but she may never get that break. And, and, you know, that's, that's one of the mysteries of life, I guess. Well, it, it, it could be the mystery or it could be, you know, Providence. And that's just not, it's sure. not what God wants for her at that yeah. time. That yeah. very well could be, sure. One of the one of the gifts that God gives us, or two of the gifts that God gives us, is curiosity and imagination. I think they are somewhat stuffed in a jar at about uh, age of 12, 14, 16, depending on what comes our way. Um, it's unfortunate that these two incredible gifts we just push off to the side. And um, I don't know. It's because by 12 years old, we're taught to sit down and shut up and stop asking questions. Yeah. And back in your day, my day, the ruler came out. If <laughs> you didn't. <laughs> oh, so true, so true. Hey, well, let's finish it off with a bit of a speed round. It's been just fantastic. Um, you and Denise, you've got the option to go out for a fine dining meal, takeout, or make an amazing dinner at home. What are you doing? Fine dining. Fine dining. Uh, what do you do to let your hair down? What do you do for fun? I, you know, I used to play a lot of poker. I, I don't play much poker anymore, but I, I watch poker. I love poker. Uh, I, th I find it the most fascinating game because it's not just, it's, it's not just strategy, it's psychology, it's people. It's, mm -hmm. there's a lot of skill set to it, but there's a lot of gamble to it. Uh, I find it fascinating. I read, I've read poker, every poker book imaginable. And I, I just find it fascinating. It's a hobby. You know, I grew up in a kind of a conservative home and cards were not, not something that we, we did a lot. We could play rough, but we right. couldn't play cards. We couldn't play right. It's kind of interesting. Um, favorite band? 
ACDC. I wish I could have seen them in concert. You know, there's just people you're never going to be able to see ever again. I never saw Michael Jackson. I would have loved to have seen Michael Jackson. Never saw Prince. Would have loved to have seen Prince. But I grew up on ACDC. They were my band. And and I come out on stage uh, to... Um, uh, thunderstruck. Although the, the engagement you and I did, I changed it up and went out something else, but I've for 20 something years, I've come out with thunderstruck. Mm, I love that. Uh, text talk or phone. Uh, well, the funny thing is, is if somebody texts me back and forth three times, I call them I'm like, I'm not doing this anymore. You're at your phone. I'm at my phone. And I just call them and go, let's just talk. So I would prefer to talk if it's going to be anything quicker than, or longer than one, one or two texts. Awesome. Audible or book? Book. I just ordered a book today, actually. Uh, and uh, and I tweeted out to the I tweeted out. To, I saw it on a Twitter and I tweeted out. I just bought mine. And uh, he wrote back. Thanks. And I sent him a link to all my books. And I said, now you can buy one of mine. And then I said, just kidding with a little a little uh, laughy face. But uh, no, I just bought a book today. I, I rarely listen to to books. Speaking of books, how many books have you written? Uh, if you include ebooks and ghostwriting and all that stuff, 24. 24. Do you still ghostwrite for people or do you? I do. I just uh, finished one for a uh, CEO of a major clothing brand. Um, and uh, that should be coming out uh, probably when is probably the end of the year, maybe, maybe first quarter of 2024. Any shameless plugs you want to give? Uh, yeah, I mean, my latest book that uh, just came out, it's get it just got optioned as a movie, and it's called Four Seasons. And it's a story about a billionaire. It's a fiction book about a billionaire who finds out he has one year to live, thus the term Four Seasons. And uh, it's about his last year on Earth and how he reconciles some relationships with his children. Um, it's, it's really the story is about how all these great things happen in our lives, but it's set against the backdrop that we're all going to die. He just knew that he was going to die a year from now. Most of us think we're going to die 20 years from now. He knew he had a year. So he's got this backdrop of impending doom, but he has his 35th wedding anniversary. He has uh, his first grandchild. He has his, one of his daughters gets married. So, you know, his last Christmas, last Thanksgiving, last Easter, you know, how do you experience joy in those things, knowing that life is going to end for you. So it's sort of this dichotomy of life. And, and I mean, I've had, I've had 60 year old billionaires call me crying halfway through the book. I mean, it's, 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 it's one of my better books. I, I like it. Wow. Uh, sounds a little bit like my life. Not that I know I'm going to pass away, but I'm about that age and I've got a grandchild coming and all that <laughs> kind of good stuff. But uh, I got goosebumps when you shared that with me. Wow. That's pretty cool. Pretty cool stuff. Okay, last question. Trick question. If you were a scratch and sniff sticker, a scratch and sniff sticker, what would you be? This may be the most unique question I've ever remember. If I was a scratch and sniff sticker, what would I be? My first thought was chocolate. My second thought was no, probably wine. Um, <laughs> chocolate or wine, something that's comfort, something that's that that is it's good, but it comforts. Um, and both of them are healthy for you. Chocolate is healthy, especially dark chocolate is healthy for you, and and uh, wine is healthy for you in moderation. So probably chocolate or wine. Well, I love that answer. Um, I'm a, a pina colada with a sea breeze because I love being at the beach. There you go. I the kite surf a little bit, as you know, and uh, yep. and uh, it just reminds me of hanging out with my wife. So I love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
Well, Chris, what an amazing uh, 45 minutes, 50 minutes that we've had on return on life. It's not about the ROI always, it's about the return on life. And I really appreciate you being an incredible guest. Thank you so much. It's been awesome. It's been a great interview and I love all the the uh, the great questions and it's been it's been a lot of fun talking about life and business and and getting ahead and making a difference and uh, making a lasting impact. Well, rich life you've lived and rich life I've lived and uh, we'll continue to rich, uh, live, yep. live a rich life. Thank you so much. Thanks.